You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. Before we start today's show, a word for one of our sponsors, Zing Bales. From the creators of the electronic flashing wicket system you would have seen all over TV, Zing are pleased to announce the Club Zings, giving you the opportunity to take the excitement from the big tournaments to your local club. With 1,800 lumens of light, the Club Zings look spectacular, engage spectators, help retain juniors and unlock additional sponsor investment through the sale of stump sticker sponsor rights. Find out more at zings.biz club. Right, we've got loads to talk about today. We've got the England-India White Ball Series, the first England-South Africa ODI, a round of the county championship, a look ahead to finals day, loads of other international cricket. I'm Yaz Rana and with me to get through all that and more is the Wisdom.com managing editor Ben Gardner and freelance cricket writer Cam Ponsonby. But first, let's hear from Mark Butcher, who gives us his views on the England-India series, tells us his concerns over the future of ODI cricket, as well as why he doesn't really like the format of finals day. Butch, we're five games into the Joss Butler, Matthew Mott era. What have you made of it so far? <laughs> um, well, not a lot, actually. It's been, it's been fairly, uh, well, the cricket's been fairly underwhelming. Um, as far as noticing any sort of discernible change from Morgan and, uh, and, and what had gone before, there, there's not a great deal, is there? I mean, it's, it's very difficult to tell. So at the minute... It just seems as though, and all of this is through the prism of what's what's happened with McCullum and Stokes, isn't it? Really, I mean that's that's the that's the striking thing about it all. If this had just been what it is, a sort of a random three match T Twenty series and a random um, ODI series with no points on it or anything like that, then it's kind of all of it's a little bit. Uh, you wouldn't be drawing too many conclusions about it and, under normal circumstances, but all of this is seen through the prism of as what has happened with the change in the test team. And because that has been so exciting and so beguiling to watch, 
you kind of, you know, that there's a lot of pressure actually on Josh Butler and on Matthew Mott to kind of show that not only are they taking on the legacy of, of, of Owen Morgan's team, but they're also pushing the boundaries in some way. And, and of course, that hasn't happened yet. Um, so uh, it's, it's been underwhelming. I mean, the, the, the two 50-over games have been probably the, the worst possible argument for 50-over cricket you could have so far. Um, and we're just hoping for better in Manchester. I guess among all the injuries, there have been some standout performances from Quicks who are either on the fringes or who haven't had a great time of late. So Chris Jordan and Richard Gleeson in the T20s and then Reece Topley and David Willey in the second ODI. Yeah, um, great story for Richard Gleeson, I suppose, at 34, is he? 34 years of age. Sort of come in and, and taken to it. Actually, taken to it as you would hope somebody of that age would. I mean, you know, you know I've sort of advocated for for your more mature player in the past when it's come to sort of test match opening batting, funnily enough. Um, but what you would hope is, is what, would, what tends to happen in Australia. Guys wait forever for an opportunity, but then when they play, however long it's for, you know, it might be a little supernova. It might only happen for a very short space of time. They burn brightly because they kind of know what they're doing. They've been around for long enough to, to, to sort of not be overwhelmed by the occasion and just go out there and, and perform skills that they've learned over the course of, their, their playing lives. And that's what's happened with Richard Gleeson. So that's, a, that's a, a handy little bonus, I suppose, for England. Should they find themselves in a situation where they have lots of, um, you know, a lot of injuries and they're, 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 there's a gap there in the, in the fast bowling market, they've got a guy that's sort of ready-made to, to come in and do a job. And, and who knows, he might stay there for the, for the rest of the summer. When it comes to Chris Jordan, I mean, look, he's, I think he's always been class. I think he's always, he's always kind of ended up getting the, the rough end of the stick, basically, because he bowls at the period of the game where there is a lot of rough end of the stick knocking around. Um, but he certainly seems to have got, you know, he seems to have sort of picked up a little bit of pace. He's sort of, he's really having people hop around. He's loving being the sort of like the senior man around the, the group. I think he's, he's also really enjoyed being captain at, at the Oval in the T20s. Um, and, it's, and it's bringing out the best in him as, as responsibility tends to do with, with, um, with highly talented people. So um, but I'm very, very pleased to see. And of course, Reese Topley in the, in, the, in the ODI yesterday. I mean, he's, his story is fantastic. And, um, you know, the, the, the injuries and the, the fact that he really did, he really thought that he would never play the game again. To see him back there now and to see him, he's a genuine option for England in, the, in the all white ball cricket, really. Left arm, a very tall, makes it bounce, can swing it when uh, when the conditions are right, um, and so he is. I, I think he, you know, he's he's definite in any fifteen for England going forward, you no, know, to major tournaments, and and that's great. I guess with Topley, given the injuries that he's had, you always forget how far he he went in his career very early on. He was like a semi regular for England in white ball cricket when he was 21, 22. Uh, moving on to the spin department, Matt Parkinson played a bit in the T Twenty series, and now is not in the team with Adil Rashid not in the squad for the India series. How much is that a concern, I guess, for him more than anything else? Because with Livingston in the squad now, it looks like they trust his spin enough for them not to really bother with a, a, a secondary spin option with, with Adil Rashid not in the team. Yeah, I mean, it's that's if you're Matt Parkinson, you're probably thinking, oh, wow, OK, this is this this is bad. Um, I, I, it looks as though they made a judgment on, on Matt Parkinson and, and just not, not convinced that he's up to it at this moment in time. Now, again, that's not terminal for Matt Parkinson. He's what twenty six, um, and, and he's got a lot of he's got a lot of work to do. I think as a as a to become a, a regular international bowler. 
Uh, and that was highlighted actually at times yesterday when I think NASA did a really great piece on, on the third man. He sort of compared, compared the high end and the low end of, of Chahal with the high end and the low end of Matt Parkinson. And, you know, what, what he discovered in looking at those numbers, raw numbers, was basically that Chahal can go from anywhere up from 59 miles per hour down to 44, at the, the quickest and the slowest end. And that Matt Parkinson, is, is, his range is, goes from slow at 50 to slower at 44. And there is nothing really, you know, above that in order to, in order to keep batters honest. And I think if there's an area... Yeah, he also he also pointed out that sort of in terms of in terms of line, Chahel is a much straighter, which Adil Rashid would be. You know, his his great success began as a as a as a one day bowler. Adil Rashid once he managed to sort of control his line to be to bring the stumps into play a lot more. And again, it was sort of Matt Parkinson tends to be off stump and wider, whereas Chahal tends to be middle stump. Um, you know, on a more regular basis, sort of bringing lots more modes of dismissals into play. So you add those two things together, and you have the mature leg spin bowler on the one hand, and, and a guy who's perhaps, you know, he's got he's got talent, but isn't quite there yet. Um, and so at the moment, you would say for the for the immediate future, um, World T Twenty and Fifty Over World Cup, that that Parkinson is going to find himself on the outside. Um, but that's not to say that he is he's done forever. It's just it's just to say there's work to be done here. And, and that is my, that's, that's the way I see it at the moment. Jason Roy is in the midst of a bit of a lean spell across a two-series T20 and ODI. There have been some calls to see someone like Salt given a go in these series against a, the elite opposition, I guess. How, how do you see it? I mean, Roy's always been a really streaky player. Uh, he was one of England's most important players in the World Cup win in 2019. But he is someone who has been dropped before uh, a really crunch time, the 2017 Champions Trophy. How do you, how do you see it with Roy at the moment? Yeah, I mean, I think he's he's going through a, 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 an interesting patch, actually, sort of with with his own confidence and maybe maybe some stuff off the field. Obviously, he had the the issues with with sort of bubble life, etc. But something obviously went awry um, during the sort of in the January February period um, of, of this year. Um, and he and he doesn't doesn't quite look himself at the moment. You know, he's not sort of bristling with the same sort of confidence that you would normally associate with him. Um, but I would imagine that 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 Josh Butler and the and the sort of senior group in the team are going to be very loath to leave him out at the moment um, with the two World Cups coming up. Um, however, of course, there are, you know there are, you can't always live on the, the things that you've done in the past, uh, and and they'll want to see some signs of improvement um, very, very quickly. I mean, I, I noticed something yesterday, it just, you know, just a technical thing. And sometimes, you know, a lot of people often say, oh, well, you know, technique isn't all it's cracked up to be. But it, it, if you have things that are going badly wrong with the way that you mechanically do things, then, then that can, it, it becomes chicken and the egg. You, you know, the, you get out, so the confidence goes down and therefore the, the technical issue becomes more and more prominent. And it's just, you know, he's, he's getting his hands a long way away from his body as he picks his bat up, which means that he, you know, he's, he's bringing his hands across the line of the ball. Um, you know, a little bit like the, the Zach Crawley issue from time to time, which means he's very, very susceptible to that ball nipping back and the gate's wide open. Um, and also he's sort of finding, he's hitting the ball on the, in the inside half of the bat more often than not. And so, you know, one of the things with somebody like Jason is, because he is such a sort of, you know, a confident guy, if all of a sudden the ball striking is no good, that really works away your confidence. You know, you don't feel as invincible. If you're not stinging the hands of the bloke at mid-off and mid-on, 
um, and you know, crunching the ball and being able to hit the ball with a sort of weight that you're used to, it diminishes your confidence. Um, and so, you know, if you can get that little, that little technical flaw sorted and make yourself less vulnerable in the, in the early stages of these games when the ball does a little bit, um, you know, then we'll, we'll see him back to his best pretty shortly, I should think. He's always like the anti-Paul Collingwood when, when Collingwood was, was slightly out of nick. He would, he would kind of like feel his way to a score as Roy goes at the ball so hard that if he's not in good touch, that actually, you're almost like he doesn't really have other scoring options. No, I mean, that's, I think that's absolutely true. And, and, so, and so therefore, having the bat swing, in a, in, you know, having the hands go back into the slot and being able to come down where, where he thinks they should be, where they want to be, is, 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 is entirely, his entire game is based around that. And if that's not working, then you're, you're going to find yourself in all sorts of trouble. A couple of non-England questions to finish. We've got one question in from a listener, Will Cook, who writes in to say, with T20 cricket being the fun, entertainment-focused format, bringing in new fans and money, and Test cricket still being the purest, elite form of the game, now that there's a T20 World Cup, what is 50-over cricket other than crowding the calendar? There's not as much money in it. It's not as entertaining as a short form and it's World Cup USP has gone. I suggest that it's not test cricket that will phase out, but 50 over cricket. Do you think Will's got a point? He has, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I thought, funnily enough, it, it, this was seven years ago, I suppose. This is prior to Morgan's sort of resurrection of, of England's fortune in 50 over cricket. And of course, you have, to, you have to put this in the, again, you have to put this in, in the context of you're looking at it from an England point of view rather than anybody else's, um, was that, you know, the 50-over the game seemed like it was dead in the water. But, of course, then, you know, the, the revolution with, uh, with, with McCullum and Bayliss sort of occurred and suddenly England were the most entertaining 50-over side in the world to watch. And I sort of went back in my box a little bit <laughs> um, because, you know, they, they kind of reinvented it for, for a short period of time. Now... That reinvention is still there. They still they they still want to play and try to play in a way that, that, that put, trying to put three fifty on the board and attacking at all costs, etc. Um, however, it just it, it almost it felt at times during the during the course of the, these two one day internationals between England and India that fifty overs felt like it was too long for both of these sets of batters to bat. You know, <laughs> they just couldn't be bothered with. You know, England found themselves in a position um, twice where, you know, they'd lost wickets, they needed to bat for a bit longer, and they just didn't want to do it. It was just kind of, we're just going to keep swinging, and if we get bowled out in 34 overs, then, then so be it, type thing. And you kind of think to yourself, well, oh, wow, okay. If, if the attention span of the players isn't there to kind of to try and use up all 50 overs, then why should the crowds be? Um, so it's an interesting one. I mean, there was, a, there was some chat going around in the commentary box yesterday. I think Ravi said... Uh, not not on air, but off air. Ravi said something along the lines of they'd had conversations that that fifty overs should become forty overs pretty quickly. You know, they talked about it in India. Um, you know, lose lose twenty overs of the game and make it um, you know more like the old Sunday league. Um, I mean, look, I think there's still a place for it for sure. I mean, and when it comes to sort of not being not being worth so much money, it depends on who you're talking about. Obviously, the players aren't aren't being franchised off for million pound contracts to play 50 over cricket. But of course it is the daddy when it comes to advertising revenues. Mm. So the, the television companies rather like it because of the way that it dominates the schedule. The games like the two that we've had don't help, do they? They don't help the argument in favour. Um, and of course, England's decision to completely and utterly sideline 
um, the 50 over comp sort of gives you the clue that the powers that be aren't all that interested in it either. So it finds itself in a, in a dangerous spot. And, um, you know, and, and I, I sort of go back to, to my feeling in 2015 that if there was a, if there was a format that was going to go, <laughs> since then we've added one, um, but <laughs> if there was a format that was going to go, that it wouldn't be um, test matches and it certainly wouldn't be T20s. It would be 50 over in the firing line. And, it, and, you know, and it could find itself in that position again. Yeah, I feel like for quite a long time, because of how entertaining that England ODI side's been since 2015, we've kind of, in England, not been aware of the debate that's possibly been held elsewhere. I mean, just this week, there have been a couple of like really hard-to-watch ODIs between Bangladesh and West Indies, like really low-scoring ones on out in the Caribbean. One final question, Butch. It's finals day tomorrow. What have you made of the lack of England availability for the business end of the blast? You had a Surrey-Yorkshire game in the quarterfinals last week where both sides were missing key players, not just key England players who you don't see very often, key England players who had helped their teams get that far in the blast. As a television product, I always think the knockout stage of the blast is actually really, really good. The energy from the crowd's quite infectious. Um, the crowd get really into it. It's, it's a really good event. And you had a Surrey team and, and a York team, actually, even though they got through, that was like well short of, of um, its, its, its first choice, the, the, the players who got them there. And with possibility with finals day, the, the same happening. You've got a, a Roses game in the first semi-final and you possibly have quite a few England players missing out. What, what do you think that sends as a message for, for how, how much the tournament is valued above anything else? Yeah, it, it's not a great one, is it? I mean, I, and I totally agree with you. Having been a stalwart of, uh, of, of blast cricket for the last 10 years or so, the, the quarterfinals are always the best week, you know, always. But, you know, I take or leave finals day, to be honest with you, because I've, I've always felt that, um, I've always felt that it, it takes the mickey out of the game a little bit. Um, but quarterfinals is pure, isn't it? You've got knockout, knockout games, big crowds, um, you know, the team's desperate to get to, to the mythical finals day, only to have to play two games in a day to win it and all the other nonsense that goes with it. But then, anyway, that's another story. Um, I don't think it was meant to be like that this year. I think that one or two sort of extraneous things happened which made the schedule get jammed up and planted the, the internationals on top of, of the quarterfinals. Although I think it was it, it was probably foreseeable that that might that might happen, and of course it's it isn't it's no good you know it's no good for the it's no good for the tournament. However, people have still gone in their droves, haven't they? I mean, Somerset was packed out. The Oval the Oval was was a little bit disappointing, and I thought the atmosphere, at least watching it on the TV, was less than mm. less than it might have been. Were you, were you up there? Dad? Yeah, I imagine if you said that to someone at Surrey, they would say that the date for the quarterfinal, even though Surrey were guarantee qualification very early on was only confirmed a few days before the game so very very hard to shift tickets in such a short space yeah time. And, and, and so you know that so if you had the if you had the quarterfinal on Saturday at Somerset you had the you had a whole week to kind of get get it going and of course you know the, the different different size in capacity and you know Taunton was always going to fill out even if if there's if their game had been on Tuesday I would have backed them to have filled it up um so yeah it, it it was it was disappointing, I guess. Uh, the game itself was was a ripper, wasn't it? It was the kind of the, the best one of the of the lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and but yeah, I mean the whole all of these all of these competitions, particularly if you're talking to a wider audience, I think with the when it comes to the to the faithful and the people that would go anyway, that you know the the personnel doesn't matter quite so much. They go there to support the club, and it's you know it's it's a proper 
um, it, it's a, it, it, it's an occasion because your club is in, regardless of, of who is who is putting the jumper on and which which players are there. But if you're talking about the wider conversation of um, you know it being a, a major a major competition and, and having eyeballs on cricket that wouldn't perhaps n- normally watch it, not having the likes of um, you know Jordan and Curran and Bearstow and Root and all that kind of thing, it does does it no no favours whatsoever. Mm. Um, so yeah. Boo, boo to that, and bad boo to it being like that on finals day as well. Um, it's um, it, it 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 has been it's been kind of the saviour of county cricket, hasn't it? The, the blast over the years, um, and it's kind of being treated a little well, not a little, reasonably shabbily at the moment. Well, uh, I look forward to your further dismantling of, of finals day and, and all that goes with it on next week's show. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, you know, <laughs> some people enjoy it, don't they? Um, but it's, you know, it's always struck me that you kind of, the team work their, their, their socks off to go and get there. Then you, you turn up in the morning to play a game. No games ever start at 11, 10, 30 in the morning, do they? The blast, they're always played mm-hmm. in the evenings. Um and then you, you, the, the team that plays the second quarter final has five minutes to get themselves ready for the game because the games are sandwiched up against one another. Then if you win the first, first game, you have to hang around for, for six hours before you get, go out and play the final in the evening in front of half the crowd because obviously you had supporters of the other two teams who have been knocked out who have gone home. I mean, it's... <laughs> have you got the idea that I'm not a fan yet? I'm not. Yeah, just about, just about. I just think that the, you know, the, the whole thing is, um, in the first instance, back in the, in the competition's infancy, it was a great, it was a fabulous gimmick to kind of, to sell um, this new idea, you know. But it's been going for 18, 19, nearly 20 years now. Um, and it's serious business. And, and I don't think the finals day format is serious, you know what I mean? I don't think it, it it's um, you know it gives it the the the, the gravitas that it deserves mm. um, to try and win this competition. Cheers for your time, Butch. Catch you next week. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over six hundred dollars each week. You can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Before we move on, a word for Gulliver Sports Travel. Gulliver's is the leading tour operator in specialist sport travel with over 40 years experience taking fans all over the world to bucket list events and once-in-a-lifetime destinations. With the Men's T20 World Cup taking place in Australia across October and November, Gulliver's Sports Travel is the official travel agent. Join them on a trip of a lifetime to experience T20 cricket of the highest calibre, watch England take on Australia, New Zealand, Afghanistan and others in the shortest and most electrifying format of the international game this winter. Head to gullivastravel.co.uk to find out more. Ben, as Butch mentioned, that was a stunning performance from Rhys Topley, one that probably catapults him ahead of quite a few bowlers in England's ODI plans and possibly T20i ones as well. Uh, yes, and it's tempting to sort of think, does he get into a first choice team as everyone is fit? But then, as we've seen with the test team, that is just an academic question, basically. I mean, you think, is he is he ahead of Wokes, Archer or Wood at this point? Probably not quite, but one of them is probably going to struggle to be on the park at any point between now 
and the World Cup, that left arm angle is something, I mean, it really is something that Sharma struggles with. And that is uh, an added thing. And he was also, I think it's worth noting, he was brilliant, not just with the new ball. And that, and that was so good. That was a new ball spell against, you know, the most consistent top three there has ever been in ODI cricket. And they basically couldn't get a bat on him. I mean, the first two overs were both maidens uh, uh, and he took the wicket of Rowan there as well. And then he came back through the middle overs with those new, those other skills with the slur ball bounces, that sort of thing to complete his, uh, his six for six. He, he was stunning. Obviously great for him. And he's still not that old as well. Cause he, when he originally played, he was so young and then he had the sort of the injury torment. Like obviously you talk about, you think sort of all stress fractures are equal and all bowlers who have had a bit of time out is the same sort of thing. His is kind of a cut above what lots of other bowlers have experienced. It was a, a real, real ride and it was looking like he might not play again at one point and now he's back doing this. So yeah, that's just great to see, I guess. He's like an English Shaheen Afridi. <laughs> what a compliment. What a compliment. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought something that's really nice for Topley is, I thought it was nice that it was paired with Bumrah almost doing, kind of producing the same figures. And after Bumrah did it, Afterwards, he said, oh, I've bowled way better for figures that weren't as good. And I'm not, I'm not really interested in the result. It's all about the process. But that's someone who's speaking, who's played hundreds and hundreds of international games. If you're still kind of fresh to the international game, you're refresh, having only recently been back and coming back from these those injuries that like Topley has, those records are going to be so special. And it was a really special day. I read pieces with him about it afterwards where both his mum and dad there, and he's having photos with them in the bottle of champagne. And so it's an amazingly special day. And it has, as Ben said, it's academic if it makes him in the first choice 11. The fact of the matter is it makes him the first pick of the people currently available. Mm. And as a bowler, he, he does, it's not just the left arm angle as well. We talked about it earlier in the year when he was in the West Indies, that he's really got his pace up as well. He can get it up to high 80s and he has a combination of skills that not that many other English bowlers have at the moment. Cam, it was quite funny how after the first ODI, after England lost the T20 series as well, that suddenly it was all doom and gloom for English white ball cricket. We had a few questions when I when I put the call out for questions before the second ODI about like how England can only be good at one format at a time. Nice for, for Butler and Mott to get that win under their belt at Lords. Oh yeah, within, within a week, the white ball system has fallen apart and repaired in the space of three days. And I think it, it's kind of similar to what Boomer was saying afterwards where he says, I just can't, I can't get too high and I can't get too low. And it is a, it is a cliche when players say this, but it's also true. They play so much cricket, they just can't afford to kind of throw their toys out of the pram and say everything's terrible after losing by 10 wickets here at the Oval because two days later, everything can be fantastic again. Um, I was wondering kind of after the first half of England's innings yesterday, yeah, yesterday, I was like, has Mott just told everyone to be miserable? Is this, was this the problem? Uh, Baz tells them all to be happy. Mott must be doing the opposite. But no, it turns out it was all, it's all fine. We're all happy again. There is so much cricket that's gone on in the last week or so that we can't go through every single game in detail. Ben, it's worth mentioning that there's a seriously good knock from Dowd Milan in there in the third T20i, uh, 77 off 39 balls or something like that. And uh, I guess with the return of Ben Stokes, possibly for the World Cup, his position was possibly under a bit of threat. Yeah, and it's difficult to know what England are going to do there because there's a few things that come into play. I think one thing that third ODI, third T20I also crystallised or gave more evidence, uh, more credence to is that England are better off just backing their batting and sort of fudging their bowling because even if you're replacing, say, Ben Stokes and Moen as your fifth bowler with like a specialist fifth bowler, actually their bowling strength is not so big that that is a huge step up. So actually you just want to give yourself as much chance, make as many runs as possible and back that the other team are not going to be able to 
to do that essentially. So they are going to probably, I think, want all-rounders down as far as they can, which brings Ben Stokes' importance more into there. Then there's the question of, can you play Ben Stokes? Can you play all three formats? I think it might well be that that World Cup is his last sort of go at doing that, but that that, uh, that bit that he still makes it to there. Uh, but then Milan is a guy who, you know, we've kind of always said is he does, he has the game for Australia. That's why they, you know, recalled him to the test side last year. Um, obviously had a bit of a, a bit of a tough time, but I don't think there's any doubt over his qualities. He's had a, you know, a good run in all formats this season, really. Um, and he started quickly as well, which has been the other criticism of him. So if he, if he is starting quickly and we know he can absolutely smash fast bowling and, and really fast bowling on flat tracks, then he is a, a really, really good asset on those wickets. So yeah, it's it's tough to know, but I think Milan at the moment would still be in England's first choice team in Australia. Um, and it's difficult to know exactly which route they'll go down in the end. Another question for you, Ben. Is Surya Kumar Yadav India's best T20 batter? Oh, I think he definitely is. And I think he's up there with the best in the world. Um, I mean, he's, he's been as astonishing in the IPL for quite a long time now. And he's he's one of those players well that he's a uh, he can basically do everything. Like he's got that consistency. He starts quickly every time. I mean, his his T20 I strike rate at the moment is astonishing. It's what 177, which is the best in the world for anyone who's played that amount of uh, that amount of cricket. Uh, he can, and he can he can hit all types of bowling. There's nothing you can really do to tie him down. Uh, he just looks like he's the complete package, basically. Which is actually it, it is something that very like normally with a player, there's like a uh, a an, an asset of the game they're not quite good at. Like they either. They don't accelerate quickly enough or they don't start quick enough or there's a type of bowling you think, okay, we can go to them, we can tie them down. He doesn't have that. And he can also, uh, there's not even like an area of the field you can plug because he can hit the ball in so many areas. The third man six was crazy. He's got incredible wrists that mean that he can just manoeuvre the ball and he's got power as well. So when you combine those two, you can kind of hit sixes to end like kind of to any ball in any part of the ground, which is a a very, very scary thing. On that, Yadav does it. And I feel like a lot of the best players in the world do this now where they almost make batting like a closed skill sport. So the whole idea... What of, do you mean by that? So so the idea, in cricket, bowling is a closed skill. So you hold the ball and so you're the variable. You bowl it and you bowl it where you want it to, where you want it to go. Batting is meant to be an open skill where you're reacting to like the cue that you're getting. Whereas Yadav with these shots where he's kind of driving the ball behind him. Like, I've genuinely never seen a shot like he's that. He's just... He's, <laughs> The field is dictating to me. He's saying, right, the, the three men are up at point, backward point and short third. It was at least to Moan Alley. I'm just going to hit the ball that way. I don't care where this guy's going to bowl. And I think the best players manage to do that because all they're doing is field manipulation. They're trying to move the fielders to places where, well, if you're there, if I hit the ball over you, that means they have to change this field and that field. Um, and yeah, I thought it was it's astonishing, his innings. And it's a crazy ride. Ben references strike rate. He averages 39 with a strike rate of 178 in T20I cricket. He's 31 and he's kind of emerged in the slipstream of the more established superstars in Indian cricket. But now you, you can't not play Surya Kumar Yadav in, in white ball games for India. Yeah, I think a sign of his esteem, if you go back to before the last IPL when they had the mega auction so they could only retain two or three players. And he's at Mumbai Indians who are probably one of the, the one of the best run sides in the world if you just discount this season. Uh and they retained him ahead of Ishan Kishan, who, you know, could have been the young guy to take the team forward for 10, 15 years. And ahead of Hardik Pandya, who is, you know, one of the best T20 rounds in the world, albeit he wasn't bowling fit at that point, And he's a better player now than he was then. But that shows just how highly uh, they rated him and they, they kind of know what they're doing. But yeah, I think when you say, I mean, we, I guess, you know, he's, he's not yet uh, fully like wrap, put together an incredible record in ODI cricket. He hasn't played that much of it. 
um, I guess the question is, is that Eng- India have so many players who are undroppable in T20 cricket for sort of various reasons that at some point there's something's got to give basically. Like if you go through it, Rohit Sharma, Kara Hall, Sky, Virat Kohli, Risha Pant and Hardik Pandya and Jadeja probably. That's that, seven. That, that, that's a top seven. But then they're resting and rotating so often that players are coming in and putting together cases that are close when answerable, like Deepak Huda, okay, it was against Ireland, but made an absolutely stunning century in the in the T20I series there. Dinesh Kartik is one of the best T20I finishers in the world and isn't in that top seven. So players who are sitting out, on India are either going to have to leave out a player who is in absolutely red-hot form for a T20 World Cup in a format where form is so, so important, or they're going to have to make a really tough decision and leave out one of those sort of six borderline undroppable players. Um, and I guess the the one that people will be hoping uh, will be Virat Kohli, who's been left out for the T20i series in the West Indies. I think that probably suggests that India feels that, I mean, he needs a rest. He's just been rested. Yeah, he, yeah, yeah. He's, he's just been rested, yeah. And it probably suggests that India don't feel the need to give him as much cricket as possible for him to regain form ahead of that T20 World Cup, which I think probably suggests that they are looking to play him come what may. But then if someone comes in and has you know, an absolutely barnstorming series, then they are going to be faced with a decision. And Kohli's stock is has slowly dropped and then actually quite quickly dropped over the last sort of uh, year or so. So it's not inconceivable that could happen. But I think at the moment, their plan would still be to have him yeah. probably bat at number three with Sky at four. Well, I think him and Rohit will, will both still play in the World Cup. But I think the rise of, the rise of Sky, I think, kind of shows uh, how difficult it is for India to actually end up picking your best 11. I think it's less than two years since Sky had a really good IPL after which he still didn't make an India squad for the Tour of Australia. That was only late 2020 and in a very short space of time he's kind of made a mockery of that mission. And you've got someone like, I think you were saying before we started recording that Sandhu Sampson is arguably India's second best T20 batter. I probably wouldn't have him that high myself but he's obviously brilliant and he's not even in the squads for the, almost like the second string tours at the moment so it's such a hard job for them to get it right and then you you know you look at the bowling someone like Arshdeep Singh on debut just looks like ready international cricketers straight away it's so hard for them to kind of balance those established stars who've done really well for India for a long time and these IPL superstars in their own right who are struggling to get into that side but when they do get into the side show how good they are from day one and the other thing is uh, if you look at those Ireland games and the England games that India seem to be doing now, they weren't doing for a long time in T20 cricket, is basically coming out and realising they have, you know, the best bats in the world and just putting them all to as much use as possible. So they're basically trying to just make as many runs as they can and not worrying about, you know, conserving wickets, bang through the innings, that sort of thing. Uh, Rohit Sharma has really, really, like, sort of, he's stepped up in terms of that approach. Like, he's a, had a brilliant strike rate across those and has had a few useful contributions. I guess the question is... Can Coley be that player, which he has kind of never really been in T20s, even though he's had a brilliant record at times, um, but he's it's always been as that sort of anchor? Or do they still see the value in having that kind of that one anchor player at number three and the rest are guys who can go from ball one? I guess that will be a question that we find the answer to in not too long. Cam, just going back to England, um, it was a really good series for Chris Jordan, someone who came in for a lot of flack during the T20 World Cup, whose record for England actually just hasn't been that good for a long time. Um, and now he's bowling with really, really good pace. He's hitting, he's not just trying to bowl Yorkers, he's hitting the pitch hard as well. And like after a really good uh, summer with Surrey in the blast, he's now converted that form into, against one of the best sides in the world. He's, he's having a bit of a renaissance. It's quite, it's quite fun to watch actually because he had 
had quite a torrid time for a number of years and it was kind of he'd gone from being this kind of untouchable figure to kind of years down the line going is this guy actually up to it and then he had that port like kind of nasty showing in the semi-final then he's come to Surrey he's done exceptionally well here he kind of abandoned those Yorkers in the first two T20s against India bowled exceptionally well Morgan going has meant that he and he was already a senior player and now he's even more important within that team he's the captain at Surrey like from going from a, he's gone from a player basically where he was potentially on the peripheries of the side and just about hanging on to actually being the premier bowl one of the premier bowlers again he's probably kind of second or third in terms of the captains or he's second vice captain on the pitch or whatever so yeah long live chris jordan he's gonna keep going forever and with tomorrow mills has had a difficult start to the summer you don't know uh when joffre archie back for england he is suddenly very important in England's T20 plans again when a lot of people would have been questioning that. We questioned that uh, during the T20 World Cup. Yeah, and just Ben Jones from Crickbiz wrote an interesting piece on this um, on the Wisdom site about how Jordan's done that, about how he sort of, he's pulled his length back, he's got a really tight line, how he's bowling quicker than he has before. I think one thing that's worth noting about Jordan as well is that the questions were quite specifically around his death bowling. In that T20 World Cup, he was actually a very, I mean, we know he's a, a useful, a very good batter at number eight and a brilliant fielder. And he actually he was taking wickets in that sort of that seven to 10 over period, which was a, a really important time to, to strike. So he sort of found ways to contribute in other areas that meant that he was still probably on the whole, a positive player. Uh, but that, that the thing that he was in the side for was what was kind of most worrying. If he's got that back up to just a good level, everything else that he adds means that he's a very good player to have in a squad and in a team, I think. At the time of recording, we're one game into the England-South Africa ODI series. England are 1-0 up after Emma Lamb's first international 100, took them home with ease at Northampton. She's the first England player to debut in the last nine years to score an international 100 for England. A quietly significant game, not only with Lamb's runs, but the decision to promote Sophia Dunkley up to number three for the first time in ODI cricket. That top four hasn't really changed in quite a long time and now there are two young'uns in there both of whom are doing well um Anna asks what do England have to do to take the next step up to Australia's level or is this only to be to be solved with more infrastructure changes and support uh it's it's a good question I mean it just depends it kind of depends what you mean by Australia's level I suppose like if England are going to be and I mean I don't think any team apart from Australia have the possibility to be as dominant as Australia were between those two World Cups. I mean, what, between the end of 2017 and that World Cup final win, they lost one ODI. Like, that that's absurd. That's that's probably never going to happen again. Even Australia are going to struggle to repeat that. Um, but there were games in there where England and other teams pushed them close. I mean, they did lose that one ODI. England got sort of semi-close in the final, got close in the first game of that tournament. And I think that while the structure is changing and Australia is still ahead in that, England will reap the rewards of that uh of that new the structure in the hundred, also of the KSL. I mean, Emma Lamb is uh, she's a, a baby of the KSL as well. In the first season, she was the um, the leading non-international run scorer, I think, in the competition, um, and then sort of had you know off, off to uni. Uh, she uh, at one point had to uh, she just knew somebody worked in like an indoor net. She was basically um, at lunch times and it was like a bit emptier. They would just open the door and let her have a net, basically. And that's how she was getting her practice in, which had to arrange all herself. And now professionalisation has come in. So you get players like that who are able to sort of um, be more ready and make advanced case for international selection. And I think there are also just cricketing things that England can do to close the gap as well that are just about uh, selection, about how they play, about how they can sort of combat through in those ways. So I don't think England are going to be 
the best side in the world uh, still for a, a little while. But that doesn't mean that on their day they can't beat Australia. And if that day happens to be in a T20 World Cup or an ODI World Cup in four years' time, then that they could still be world champions without being the best side in the world, I think. And there are things they can do to close that gap even before they uh, sort of close the, the structural gap, which is... I don't know if it's narrowing, but England's structure is improving, I yeah. guess. I, I just think that the lag times for all these structural changes are quite long. So I think it's going to be the... It's it's the players who are probably like 16, 17, 18 now benefiting from having a, a fully professional introduction to their senior cricket, basically. I think it's only then that you'll really see... I mean, with Australia, it's not just their 11. It's just they have so many players who kind of whoever they call upon is just ready for international cricket. I mean, Alana King was 25, 26 before she made her international debut and straight away was brilliant. That's kind of the consequence of like a really good domestic structure over a long period of time to, to produce players like that. And I think that could still take quite a long time. Yeah. To get to, get to Australia's level. I, I agree yes. with you that England could possibly win a World Cup without that happening, but to get to Australia's level, I think. But it's also difficult to know how long or short these changes can be. Like you see something like, like the ACE programme started only a few years ago and already that's producing cricketers that are getting, uh, you know, picked up in the hundred and you see just like, it, the, England's like possible player pool for selection has expanded absolutely massively just based on basically one season, the hundred and I guess the, um, uh, the, the Rach Hayhoe Flint trophy in the Charlotte Edwards Cup the year before that. Um, so, the and you know, someone like Alice Capsey say like, that that stat that was it when Sophia Dunkley made her debut. She was the first specialist England batter to debut for like six or seven years, and now England actually, if there was like an injury crisis, even say like a you know a COVID thing, and they had to select a whole new squad, they would actually kind of have the ability to do that. Whereas in the past, they would have actually just not had a clue. So that it has changed things quite quickly. But I guess it's almost one of the things where you can make a lot of progress quite quickly, and then getting that extra ten percent is what takes five or ten years. I guess I don't know. Elsewhere in the women's game, South Africa's Lizelle Lee announced her retirement from international cricket this week. At the age of 30, she retires as South Africa's leading run scorer in women's T20i cricket and their second leading run scorer in ODIs. Um, announcing her retirement, she said, it is with a lot of mixed emotions that I announced my retirement from international cricket from a very young age. I have lived cricket and wanted to represent my country at the highest level. Over the past eight years, I've been able to live that dream and I feel like I've given everything I could to the pro tiers. I feel like... I'm ready for the next phase in my career and will continue to play domestic T20 cricket around the world. Um, in, in a way, it's, it's good that those career options are available for the leading women's players in, in international cricket as much as that is a huge loss to South Africa who also lost Minion Dupree after the World Cup early in the year. Uh, yeah, but it is a massive shock still. And I mean, the, the difference in timing between Zell Lee's statement coming out and any word from Cricket South Africa coming... Uh, give, also, given the fact that her account is not verified on Twitter and has a slightly awkward Twitter handle, you were like, "Is this is this real? Have I is this somehow one of these parody accounts?" Um, uh, yeah, so I mean, I, it's hard to know what's gone on there because you say thirty years old, no questions about form really. I mean, the Almanac named named her the leading women's cricketer in the world for twenty twenty one, and she was one of the most watchable batters in the world in her own way because just because of being one of the most powerful that when she was in you kind of felt that she kind of hit any ball for six and that she she would do that and it was only actually it was quite recently she's added consistency to that you know South Africa were getting test opportunities you would have had an opportunity a chance to see if she could combine those two aspects of the game and then now we're only going to see her in in t20 cricket around the world so it's it's, it's a big shame and it's also a, a slightly puzzling thing I guess yeah I think I think 
your point at the beginning is is the kind of crux of the issue that progress is almost choice is the ability to have the choice and so although it is kind of sad and a shame on the one hand because I know like cricket fans here would have seen her in the 100 last year for instance and they'll see her again this year um, to kind of see a player kind of leave at 30 think like what's, what's going on there but then it, if she feels right I can play in the big bash I can play in the 100 a women's IPL is coming I can make my money on the domestic kind of circuit that's not an option that would have been available in the women's game even five years ago so kind of it's not a pinch of sugar as opposed to a pinch of salt I guess <laughs> nice line um, we've had a, another really good round of the county championship a couple of cracking finishes with uh, huge ramifications at both ends of the division one table Surrey beat Yorkshire at Scarborough after conceding over 500 in the first innings late on day four they won by four wickets in the end with Ben Folk scoring 130 odd runs across the game without being dismissed Jamie, Jamie Overton uh, promoted up to four in the run chase to add a bit of impetus, took six in the Yorkshire second innings to open up the game. That win keeps Surrey top. And just, just three balls left as well, just to make sure clear how yeah. exactly how close yeah. it was. That um, Yeah, folks was brilliant marshalling that chase. Uh, mm. Just an amazing, amazing game. Absolutely. North Ant secured their first Division 1 win in 18 years, bowling Kent out for 161 in the dying stages of day four. Rob Keogh and Simon Kerrigan both took fourth innings fifers. Uh, Safka overseas, Brian Rickleton scored his second hundred in as many games for North Ant. He might play against England later in the summer. Um, what's the stat that you saw? The, um, uh, the captain for their last win in Division 1 was David Sales and the player who took the catch to win this game was his son, uh, James Sales. Uh, and and that catch is worth look, digging out because yeah this this was right right at the death and they really came back into it uh, like they, it looked like it was going to peter out to a draw there were, I think about fifteen overs left in the game they still needed five wickets and they took four wickets and about five overs and then the last pair bat- batted out for a long time and then uh, yeah a sort of a, a puff of dust a low down to the left short leg catch. Uh, they've since set it to the uh, Titanic theme tune. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Kind of confirms it was a really good finish. Yes. Um, but yeah, that was a massive result at the, at the bottom of the table. Uh, it means that North Hanser one step closer to safety and Kent are in some real trouble there. Um, Simon Harmer took 13 in the matches. Essex beat Gloucestershire to keep their title challenge just about alive. Harmer now has 28 wickets in his last two games, which is handy. Um, I saw a good stat about this as well. This is the, I think this is the second time in Harmer's career that he's taken two consecutive 12-wicket match halls or better. <laughs> That's ridiculous. He, he's like on to, to get to 1,000 first-class wickets in like two years now. He takes about 100 first-class wickets a he's, year. He's just Essex's like old, wily club pro <laughs> in the days of like time cricket. We'd be like, right, you're going to bowl from that end <laughs> and you're just going to stay there all day. So I don't know. Yeah, well done, Simon. The way he dominates county cricket is is just crazy. He had a quite he had a, he had a quiet start to the summer and is now like comfortably the leading wicket taker division one. You can't imagine what would have happened if he started well. <laughs> it will be interesting to see what um, staff could do with him and with their selection for the tests this summer because there's quite a lot of things that work in his favour. Uh, I, I don't have any insight into you know how that selection will work, but when you think it's going to be massively hot uh, over the next few weeks and months um it's already been flat pitches this summer so you've got to had to go away from sort of that pace seam bowling England are targeting fourth innings chases so you might want to sort of like pack your team with the skills to combat that 
and they and but they so they have Keshav Maharaj, he's obviously the first choice spinner. But if you can pick him and Harmer, and you know that Harmer's brilliant in England anyway, uh, that that seems to me like it might be quite a logical way to go. Just go two spinners throughout that series, and they and did it in a home series over the winter, which is something that South Africa you'd never really associate with them playing two spinners in a home Test match. Yeah, and they and they both they both took loads, didn't they? So, yeah. 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 Um, elsewhere, Hampshire come to beat Warwickshire, keep some pressure on Surrey at the top. And Keaton Jennings scored a triple hundred in Lancashire's draw against Somerset. I think that's the first triple hundred in the championship in five years. Jennings is having an outstanding season in first class cricket, averaging over 100. And if you go back to the end of last season as well, he was doing really well then. So this is really sad, but just to go to show how much these guys play cricket, uh, Jennings scored 300 runs and his career average went up by one run. <laughs> well, he, he was out in like the last over of the day as well. Needed it, so Red Ink. Needed that Red Ink. In Division Two, there was a really important win for Worcestershire over Middlesex. Ed Pollock scored a 67 ball ton in the fourth innings. I was watching that on the stream, he was he was brilliant. The other three games in Division Two were drawn. Uh, a word for Wian Mulder and Colin Ackerman at Leicestershire for putting on a. An all-time record Leicester stand for any wicket of 477. Our heart goes out to Hassan Azad, who got a first baller, the first baller at Leicester innings <laughs> in an obscenely high-scoring game. Le- Leicester's highest ever first-class total as well. Really? Uh, wow. Yeah. Um, what, what I also enjoyed about the Worcestershire Middlesex game was uh, apparently it was for, for, for Visa issues. That's why they couldn't uh, announce it any more before the start of the game. But announcing 10 minutes before play starts that you've signed Umesh Yadav and that he's playing <laughs> at Merchant Taylor's School. Uh, that is a quite cruel, but he, he, he didn't do that well and, and, and wish he won it. So. Is, is there something worth noting just in terms of like McCullum coming out and them saying we want players to play in a certain way? Does a, a hundred like Pollock's, Pollock's there in the last innings of 70 balls, does that carry more weight than in previous years? If they've said made it very clear the type of players we want, I know it's only second first class century, but I think that's true anyway. Um, but whether that actually those are the kind of performances you need to look out for now where people will be like, right, you can you can win a match, you can chase down 250 or whatever it was on day four. That's the type of player we're in it, we're interested in. I see what you're saying. I don't I don't think Ed Pollock's next cab of the rank. Oh yeah, but, no, I'm, but, not, yeah. I'm not saying that. But but, but I, I do think that it, it does I think you said before we started recording, it, it possibly narrows who England might be looking at yeah. for their next options. I mean like someone we could talk a little bit about later in the show, but Ben Duckett is having a really good season in all three formats. Um, he bats naturally in the way that McCullum's looking for. That that surely must come into it. Whereas previously, if you had two blokes who had very similar averages batting at three, where if one strikes at seventy five, anyway, surely that's that's a bonus that that fits into the way England are going to play. I think it must, it must do. Also, the players England have in their Test side at the moment, you almost take for granted how difficult it is to score at that rate as well. And I, and I do think a lot of players who are having good summers are actually possibly just not capable. Of, of batting as quickly as you know like Pope, Pope Root Stokes Bairstow are such quick scorers naturally um, there, there are only a handful of players in the country who I think are capable of doing that yeah I think one of the other things as well is that they'll take notice of players both making an effort to do that and just being able to even if it's just at times being able to sort of exert that pressure back onto the bowls even if it ends up in the whole scheme of things, their strike rate isn't high. They're not, they're not selecting purely just based on strike rate now rather than by average. But it's like, you'll see just, that, and I think they're, they're smarter to think that it's, it's identifying a passage of play where you can really gain an upper hand rather than just coming out and trying to every ball four. So uh, someone like even Dom Sibley, who ended up not scoring that quickly in the game as a whole, and uh, but he came out 
at this, on that first morning and was scoring at a run a ball for his first 40 runs and sort of gave Warwickshire sort of like a head start in that game. That's the kind of thing I think that will take notice as much as because Ed Pollock is sort of a, a, a different sort of case because he uh, he scores quickly, you know, whenever he bats in whatever format, he'll just try and smash it. But I think they will take notice of players who have previously not shown that gear, showing it, even if it is just in fits and starts, I guess. Bit of signing news. Kent have signed India Quick, Navdeep Saini for a few games. He'll join Matt Henry in their attack for their huge game against Warwickshire next week. Both sides in a bit of relegation trouble. Roger Smith asks, why is Liam Dawson not being looked at as a test player? He could easily play the Moeen Ali role and is very reliable with a solid first-class average with bat and ball. He scored 90-odd this week and took four wickets in their win against Warwickshire. He's having a really good season, averaging 36 with the bat and 25 with the ball for a side who could well win the championship. Um, Cam, I've always found him quite a fascinating player in that England seem to have made their mind up on him quite early. He's done okay for England. Don't see him that often. Um, and yeah, obviously Leach is doing really well at the moment, so he's not in immediate contention for England, but with that Pakistan tour later in the, the year, you could you could see him coming back. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm a bit biased here in that I, I really like Liam Dawson as a cricketer. Um, I think the, the Moeen Ali role comparison... Moeen Ali's not doing the Moeen Ali role at the moment. They kind of they don't have that position in the team at the moment, the way it's set up. Um, I think England also probably see Liam Dawson, where he's this great all-rounder for Hampshire. He bats in the top six, he scores runs, he's their premier spinner. For England, he's a bit of a no-rounder in that he's not top six. He's not one of their top four bowlers. So he does have to kind of exist in that probably batting at seven or eight and as the fifth bowler. And there's only very specific circumstances where that role exists. But Pakistan is one of them. So I think if if in six months, whatever, that question still asks, like, well, where's Liam Dawson? That's a fair criticism. I think I think he's just in the running for Pakistan. I think he's ahead of, if Ali doesn't play, he, if Worcestershire in the run-up, he's ahead of him. He's ahead of Don Bess. He's ahead of Verdi. He's ahead of Crane. Like, you can list all the spinners. And, and these are the guys who went to India last year. Yes, I think you mentioned the, those the, the five spinners that they took to India last year. That that blew my mind to who they were. When you think about we're only a year later and it's so different. And also England seems to have fallen a bit out of love with Parkinson. So there, there's a space up for grabs. And I mean Dawson's doing as much as he can to take it. I, th- I think the reason why he's not been in contention in the frame is that he's always been probably about third in line. I guess uh, like he can he could have played the Moen Ali role, but England had Moen Ali for quite a long time. And it's also worth noting what what's the Moen Ali role actually mean? Because you can have a spinner who bats seven, but not all spinners are the same. Moen Ali's thing was that he would take lots of wickets even when he went for runs. I don't think Dawson is quite that spinner, even though I really like watching bowl and I always feel like in some ways he should almost be more uh, threatening than he is at times. It looks to me like he gets loads of drift in the ball. I don't know anything about, you know, what facing spin bowling is like really, but that looks to me like it'd be quite tough. Uh, but then, yes, yeah, so he had Moen Ali and then Jack Leach was obviously, I mean, for a long time, he wasn't playing a home spinner at all. Um, and uh, there were sort of younger guys or guys who were more specialists. So he kind of, he hasn't had that niche. And when the niche has been wanted, they've had Moen Ali to fill it and they have Moen Ali back now again. I guess if you were going to look to play um, sort of a, a spinning, a spin batting or a spin bowling all rounder and a spinner, now that Moen Ali is available again, they would probably just go back to him. But as I say, if they want a second or third spinner in a squad, well, if they want a third or spinner in a squad for Pakistan, I think he could well be the player. Yeah, and I guess looking at his career record, he's not really ever had like a, a really excellent season with the ball. This is this is so far probably his best county summer with the ball. So 
I guess there's there's that context to, to consider as well. Finals day is taking place tomorrow. Uh, since I spoke to Butch, England have announced that Phil Salt, Matt Parkinson and Harry Brook have been made available. But that still means that there's no Joe Root, Johnny Bairstow, Liam Livingston, Josh Butler, David Woolley and Craig Overton. Um, Butch talked about why he thinks that's that's not great for the blast. Um, do you, you guys got predictions for tomorrow? Uh, I think the winner of... I think Lancashire beat Yorkshire. Yorkshire have kind of like got there miraculously... <laughs> Leicestershire were meant to be mm. there and then there was the points deduction and then they had this kind of crazy like, heist at Oval, victory yeah. at the Oval. So they've come, well, maybe, maybe that's it's written in the stars that Yorkshire are going to win. But I think what's written in, I was going to say written reality, but that's far too certain. <laughs> um, I think the winner of the second semi-final, Somerset or Hampshire will win it. Somerset have so, such a powerful batting lineup. Mm. Riley Rousseau is kind of like taking the mick at the moment in the competition. And then James Vince is the kind of leading run scorer of the competition of the comp as well. So I'm going to go the winner of the second semi-final wins. Mm. It all beats Lancashire in the final. Yeah. Yes. Uh, England Lions have played a couple of games against South Africa this week. They won the first one, lost the second. In the first one, uh, there's some very quick runs from Will Smead in his first professional 50 over game and Ben Duckett. This can't be that long before Will Smead plays for England. A lot of people talk about uh, fairly about England's white ball depth. They have so many very good openers. But now it's I think it's easy to judge where people are because of overseas leagues. And you've got so many people whose job it is to work out who the best ones are. And you see like Will Smead going to the PSL and doing well there. I think puts him above quite a lot of players who do really well in the blast, basically. And obviously he did well in the 100 as well last, last summer. It's only 20 kind of thing that... He's got, he's got to be pretty close now. Yeah, I guess the question will be for him and for those other players coming through. I mean, so that was his first professional 50 again. That, that wasn't technically a List A game, so he's just made his List A debut against South Africa A. Uh, is what do England start picking their ODI team based on in the future? Because I think it, it just is massively different. It sounds obvious to say, but like batting in ODI cricket and batting in T20 cricket, even with how England approach ODIs now these guys are they're not trying to hit every ball for four or six as you do after you're like you face 15 or 20 balls in a t20 like you do need to absorb periods of pressure you do need to sort of like pace in innings and that is something that like like Will Smith has not played a first class game ever he might it's, it's entirely possible but considering the opportunities to get around the world that he might like play very very few first class and list a games outside of international cricket and then where is he going to learn that skill. I think you even see it a little bit with Liam Livingston, I think, in the ODI side, who's trying to find his identity at number six, uh, especially having the top order having not fired two games in a row. I don't think he quite knows how he wants to play it. Uh, and or if he, he doesn't know how he wants to play it, then it's uh, it's a way that it's going to have, it's the, the success is going to be sort of temperamental, I guess, because uh, he is trying to be very attacking at the moment. So that's the thing almost that interests me with, with Smead is that, yeah, he'll definitely play T20 cricket for England. It's how much further he goes beyond that considering his opportunities outside of that will be limited. We're joined by Alex Hewitt from AOK Events, who are offering hospitality tickets for this summer's England-South Africa Test Match at Lords. Alex, great to have you with us. First up, why does cricket work so well as a hospitality event? Uh, well, it's, it's the amount of time that you get with your guests that's so precious. Uh, if you imagine at a Test Match, most guests arrive 10 o'clock in the morning for a bacon and egg sandwich and a cup of coffee, uh, and you get an hour before even the cricket starts, you know, at, at 11 o'clock. Um, but with that day going, you know, starting from 10 and if people stay till the end, not finishing till 6.30 or 7 o'clock, even if you've got quite a large group of guests with you, you're able to circulate 
uh, amongst them and spend real quality time, uh, which I don't think really many other sports um, offer. Mm. Um, so what does the hospitality experience at Lords include? Uh, Lords, uh, they knock out pretty decent breakfast, um, you know, full English or something, you know, an awful lot healthier, um, you know, should you want to temper your enthusiasm. Um, champagne, beer, wine, soft drinks, you know, from about 11 o'clock. There's a really nice upgrade at Lords now, which means also that even if you're based in the nursery ground, um, you can access a bar in the Compton stand. Um, so you don't have to keep going backwards and forwards to the, to the nursery ground to top up your Pim's glass all day. Um, lovely lunch. Uh, catering's really good there. It's improved uh, significantly over the years, uh, as, uh, as is the food at many rights holders' uh, venues. Um, program, they normally bring in a couple of celebrities uh, at lunchtime, ex-cricketers, uh, to come and give a talk, not just on the morning's play or the state of the test match, uh, but also answer any questions um, you know, from the floor as well. And most of them are pretty happy to, you know, uh, provide Instagrammable moments via mobile phone uh, to the younger generation who want to have their photo taken with a past great of the game. Uh, and then, you know, kind of afternoon tea and a bottomless, uh, bottomless amount of uh, alcohol, um, you know, really throughout the day. And a, and a superb view of the, of the test itself, no doubt. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the, the great things about um, actually that nursery ground facility at Lords is if you do get there earlier, you get to see both teams warming up in the nets right outside your hospitality facility at the start of the day. And actually being able to get that close to, you know, Joe Root, Johnny Besto, as it is at the moment, and, and to watch them from three metres away, um, that's, that's pretty unique. Uh, and then, you know, the tickets, uh, there are a variety of ticket options, um, you know, at, uh, at Lords that come with uh, hospitality. But I mean, Lords is a pretty good viewing, um, you know, stadium anyway. But those views from the grandstand, mount stand, Compton stand, you know, are, are pretty, pretty terrific. Uh, and everybody's kind of guaranteed in blocks so that you're with your guests throughout the day. Mm. Um, what is availability like for upcoming fixtures, including that first test match between England and South Africa? There's a little bit of availability uh, for South Africa. Obviously, England's sort of recent performances against New Zealand and India um, have, um, you know, accelerated demand for going to watch this England cricket team uh, play cricket. Uh, I mean, I'm a pretty avid cricket follower myself and I can't... There hasn't been a time in the last few years that England have played a brand of cricket that is um, so exciting um, and it, it ensures that people are not in the bars or the Harris Garden drinking, but actually in their seats, you know, watching, you know, a, a remarkable transformation um, in front of their eyes. So we've got about 20 or 30 places left on the Wednesday, Thursday and Friday of the, uh, of the South Africa test, which we expect, you know, they'll, they'll, um, they'll sell in the next, uh, in the next week or so uh, demand for the, India one day game uh, has been absolutely phenomenal. Uh, that's pretty much um, sold out. Uh, but then I think, you know, with the Ashes coming next year, um, we've already started to see a large number of inquiries from our corporate clients uh, who want to book early for that in order to, you know, because there's not a huge amount of hospitality inventory at Lords, unlike somewhere like, you know, Twickenham or Wembley, for instance. Um, so I think, you know, that Thursday, Friday and Saturday of the Lord's Test against Australia next year will sell incredibly quickly. 
Mm. Um, and outside cricket, um, what what other hospitality experiences do AOK events offer? Yeah, uh, so we only really sell official hospitality. So we're an official agent at Lords. Uh, we just sent about a thousand people to Wimbledon um, this past fortnight, uh, which was a terrific success. Uh, helped by the weather and probably you know Norrie going quite deep into the tournament. Always quite good to have a uh, home player, um, you know, travel far uh, in the tournament. But really anything, you know, Royal Ascot, Chelsea Flower Show, music, concerts. Um, uh, and beside that, we organise kind of parties, conferences, incentives, team building. But hospitality has been, you know, shown significant demand this year in a kind of normal year as, you know, people, you know, are proactively looking to spend face-to-face time with their customers um, and with their colleagues um, after two years of Zoom. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and and the feedback we're getting is, is just how much people have missed actually that experience of, you know, going to an event, having great seats, enjoying delicious food and drink, spending great time, you know, with 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 colleagues and, and customers and, and, and opening doors accordingly. Mm. Um, and finally, if people are listening to this and they're interested and they want to go to Lords for that South Africa Test match, what should they do? Go on to aokevents.com. Uh, there's a link there to our hospitality calendar or you can drop us uh, an inquiry uh, at sales at aokevents.com. Uh, we've got a team of brilliant uh, hospitality experts who will help you choose the right facility um, on the right day. Uh, and we only ever sell at the sort of recommended retail price. And yeah, we'd love to help. Mm, great having you on. Listeners, we'll leave a link to their website in our description for the show. Before we uh, go on to all the international cricket that's happened outside England this week, a word for our Wisden Ale, the Wisden Shop's best-selling item. Wisden Ale is back, boasting a new and improved recipe. Both the Afternoon Session Parallel and the Little Wonder Amber Ale are brewed in the UK and available now in larger 440ml cans. You can order six packs or 12 packs, which also include collectible Wisden Ale beer mats, each featuring a different Wisden Cricketer of the Year. Head to wisden.com forward slash shop to get that. This week in Sri Lanka, Chris Silverwood has finally beaten Australia in a test match. His Sri Lanka side beat Australia by an innings to level that series one all. Prabath Jayasuraya on debut took 12 wickets in the match and Dinesh Chanamal scored a first innings double hundred. A great result for Sri Lanka who are making a, a, a genuinely quite impressive renaissance under Chris Silverwood. Yeah, this was one of the test wins I've enjoyed most uh, just from a from from a well a sort of neutral standpoint, albeit and usually quite <laughs> like to see Australia get beaten. Um like there was just so much to enjoy because you had the Australia obviously won that first game and having won in Pakistan, you're kind of worrying that, okay, this is the, the you know, the second great Australian dynasty. Uh, and then this game starts. Shrankar had, had like what, three or four players ruled out due to COVID, I think, before it started. And then Smith makes his first hundred since the the first week of last year. Labache makes his first hundred outside of Australia, and you're like, okay, they are now ticking basically every box they need to uh and then it kind of all just starts going crazy basically um and then the other thing that was very very enjoyable was the just the australian i guess saltiness at the uh not 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 from the team but from their the fans and media the umpire decisions basically basically sort of insisting or not insisting but suggesting that the uh you know the decision review system how it worked just had to be changed because it was a uh, because australia happened to have burnt all their reviews and then dinesh chanamal edge behind on i think 30 it wasn't given he goes on to make 200 and then uh yeah the culmination was the cricket com au account in the second inning saying pat comes is given out despite hawkeye showing two yellows and it's like okay so 
he's out then. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so that was very, very fun in basically uh, every single way. And yeah, an amazing result for Sri Lanka. And you can't help but feel happy for Chris Silverwood, who was dealt a really rough hand with England uh, and did good things there in his first sort of 18 months in the role. And that was basically entirely forgotten about. You know, not that he didn't make errors uh, as lots of people did, but that that didn't mean that he was a had to be considered a, a failed coach at the top level. And this is a really brave choice for him to go and take this role, considering, you know, lots of stuff about Sri Lanka, about the political situation. That was the other thing that made this win amazing is that he had those protesters on the golf fort uh, through the test match, sort of in the process of uh, overthrowing the government um, and uh, uh, all that to a back to an amazing win. Uh, yeah, just a, a wonderful, wonderful game. Um, Cam, Bangladesh are 2-0 up against West Indies at the moment, but the pitch is, of course, on debate. Yeah, I've, just been, I've seen some kind of... Uh, West Indian, uh, what's the word? Unhappiness. It wasn't the word I was looking for, but we'll go with it. Basically, they're playing the, the games in Guyana and they produce kind of like these subcontinent style, really low and slow pitches. And Bangladesh have been like, this is great. <laughs> and uh, just, just wipe the floor of them. So, yeah, there's a bit of um, consternation. I think that's the word I was looking for from uh, the West Indian home ranks of like, why, why are we just helping our opponents here? Yeah, I mean, I think Bangladesh have. Uh, sorry, West Indies have batted first in both games and are yet to get to 150. It's um, not great. Not great, no. Um, I think in the in the second game, Nasim Ahmed took three for 19 uh, off, off his 10 overs. So the, the Bangladeshi spinners totally dominating there. Um, and Ben, your moment of the week is um, from the New Zealand Island series. Yeah, well, this was the the other great innings from, uh, from last Sunday when Sky was doing his thing. Uh, and... Uh, was in the ODI between the first ODI between Ireland and New Zealand. Ireland had started really well in the game. Uh, was it Harry Tector had made a, a brilliant hundred. And he's he's a really good player. It's not a moment of the week, but he had a few weeks ago he would smashed runs against India in T20Is, including pulling a Marmalek off the front foot pretty much in front of square for six, bowling at you know ninety miles an hour and plenty. He looks a real real talent. So Australia, uh, India, Ireland got up to three hundred uh, and were ahead basically throughout the chase until. Michael Bracewell basically played what can only be described really as one of the great ODI innings. I mean, um, they, you know, they, they, but, but, and then it came down to this last sort of two overs, last over. He sort of got to his hundred, had barely celebrated. Uh, the wicket fell on the last ball of the penultimate over, so they had one wicket in hand, twenty runs needed, and him on strike, and he does it with with a ball to spare. Um, it's funny because I feel like during that England series, he came, he comes in and they were saying, uh, this is like describing him as the beast and it almost felt like they were taking the mick a bit like, uh, like it's like this guy bats eight, like gets smashed at six and over and you're saying like, come on beast, well bold, just, you know, land at the right area. It's like, come on, stop, stop, stop being mean. And then he comes out and does this. Like, okay. I sort of get it now. He was playing the match in the second game as well. It, it's worth just going over that final over again. So New Zealand with one wicket in hand, needed 20 to win. Uh, Bracewell then hits four, four, six, four, six. Uh, to, to win with a ball spare. Yeah, and and they they were being people being quite critical of uh, was it Craig Young that yeah, bowled it? Craig yeah, Young but, but he was bowling it well outside off, and Bracewell was just hitting it where he wanted. He was shuffling way across and hitting it like you know, sort of behind square on the leg side. He was it was a, a really really freakish innings. Uh, and I think the other things take away to be honest is, is actually that Ireland were really good. I mean, apart from that innings, they would have been worthy winners by a distance, and it wouldn't have felt like a huge upset. It would have felt pretty sustainable, and that was with. Andrew Alberni and Paul Sterling both falling within single figures. I think they've they, they, they've done that thing again where they sort of find a solution to a problem somehow from within their own team by promoting Andy McBride to number three yeah. as their William Porterfield replacement, having been like a number eight. And 
a number eight and almost like the, the, the worst type of number eight who can sort of stick around and not score very quickly, which is often not what you want to know. The innings are like, hang on, we have a guy who can stick around and can score at a strike rate of like 65, 70 when that's sort of fine for us. Just put him at number three and he's been like <laughs> very good there. Um, Jared, Jared Kimber's done some videos on this. He's calling him like the pinch blocker where they've gone like <laughs> the 10 overs up top are actually really hard to have become really hard to score against. So like, let's get through them. Let's some, send someone up who's like not brilliant and just as kind of like cannon fodder and then we'll go and score our runs when the ball gets a bit softer. Basically. Kind of like club cricket when you've got someone who could either bat, either open or bat nine. They can't oh, really yeah. bat anywhere else. <laughs> can't really bat anywhere else. <laughs> I'm ready. I'm pitching myself that very shortly. <laughs> um, and looking at, uh, I think we're about to come onto the South Africa thing, aren't we? Uh, with South Africa. So they've, they've forfeited that um, series in Australia. And we'll talk about that a bit more in a second. But that should open up a route for someone else to get into the uh, possibly the top uh, eight spots, which will get automatic qualification in the Cricket World Cup Super League. Ireland will be, they'll almost be kicking themselves that they're not in a better position to do that because they've had some good performances and some good results during this uh, campaign. Like they what, they beat England in England in a game. They drew a series with South Africa. Uh, they've had this game where they did well. They beat West Indies in West Indies earlier this year, but they've also lost 3-0 away to Afghanistan, lost to one of the Netherlands, drew on one at home with Zimbabwe. If they had picked up, say, another three wins across those, they'd actually be, and you know, they maybe they'd scraped they might still scrape one of the ODIs against New Zealand, but they, they might well be looking at the series as one they could have won. Uh, then they'd actually be in a really strong position. As it is, they'll be in that tournament. But it does show how hard for that tournament's going to be because Ireland are going to cause any team in that mm. competition problems, I think. Yeah, just, just on that news from South Africa, they have in effect forfeited a World Cup Super League series against Australia that was penciled in for the start of next year. They're doing that to leave room in their calendar for a domestic T20 competition. It leaves their hopes of qualifying automatically for the World Cup hanging by a thread. They still got a decent chance of qualifying, but it, it now depends quite a lot on, on the results elsewhere. Um, and yeah, it highlights the, the economic reality of, of the international game at the moment. Yeah, so the reason why they've done it basically is to ensure that those players can feature in their third attempt at launching a franchise T20 tournament, which they see as being sort of fundamental to their economic viability and uh michael atherton wrote a piece in the times saying this is the tipping point uh that cricket cannibalizes itself that we're headed towards a franchise dominated landscape um which feels very plausible i think this is also as much about franchise cricket and it's sort of uh it's growth and how sort of it's become more lucrative but it's also about how um relations between boards have broken down i think the cricket africa chief executive spoke about how what a couple of seasons ago they had England booked in to come Australia booked in to come and they still lost money uh, which shows the importance of India playing but also that was the scene I think where England pulled out halfway through uh, for you know in hindsight you might say uh, debatable reasons Australia pulled out for what people were saying at the time maybe quite debatable reasons um, and that sort of quid pro quo between boards the sort of you scratch our back you'll scratch yours will take on these tours that aren't too favorable for us because you know you'll you'll come to us in the future and it all kind of just about works out that has now kind of fallen away uh, and that will take some rebuilding and if the i guess the only way out of this for international cricket i think um would be some sort of shared rights pool where india say and the other big teams recognize that yes they're the ones that make the money and the other teams don't but they also need to play the other teams to make the money and that if you just play if england play india and australia every year sure if they did that for the next four years they would make money but in 10 years time they'll be making less money than they would than if those were more scarce because it will just become dull and then even if you're india and you get your money through the ipl 
that relies on these overseas stars and if other boards are struggling and then you don't have that talent from staff coming through and people don't know who those staff players are because there's less bilateral cricket as well that is also going to be to the detriment of that so even franchise cricket might be the sort of the medium term future but i don't think that franchise cricket can even survive by itself unless there is like unless it's all working mesh together if that makes sense mm. Um, the Rachel Hey Ho Flint Trophy has got underway since we last recorded a show. The Vipers and the Diamonds are both two from two so far. Uh, Georgia Elway scored 100 for the Vipers against the Southeast Stars. Grace Scrivens, the 18-year-old Kent all-rounder that we mentioned before in the show, has eight wickets from her first two games for the Sunrise and also scored a 74 in the first of those two games as well. So very much a name to watch out for this summer in the 100. She's with London Spirit. Um, David asks... I've opened the batting at Taunton in a test match, been timed out hundreds of times because I've forgotten my kit and once had ice cream with Bill Athey and Judy Dench. Did the panel have any recurring or interesting cricket dreams? When the cricket bug gets you, it gets you. I've had, I've had recurring. I don't know if I've had interesting. I've and then more nightmares than dreams, I think. Yeah, just, I def- I've definitely had the one where you just, you just can't get your pads on, you can't get out and it's, really, it's just really sad. Mm. But um, yeah, it was just... That's all I can report for that one. For me, it's just the ball getting stuck in my hand when I'm bowling. I don't like. I, I don't like talk when people talk about like the yips and not, I don't like it. I try. I, I try. I don't want to imagine that it's actually a thing. It's, for me, it's not. It's not a dream, but it's sort of a vision that I sort of shudder whenever I watch highlights of the 2019 World Cup final win of when Jason Roy runs in to pick up that ball of him just like not getting the pick up cleanly, which is something you see happen, you know, all the time basically when there are run out chances that don't get completed that could so easily have happened and it just makes me sort of feel like just shiver to think about basically yeah mm. it's not got the same <laughs> thanks for listening to the wisdom cricket weekly podcast cheers cam cheers ben well done for getting to the end of the show we'll be back early next week cheers for listening Podcast Network.